Blog Talk Radio. The B I B L E that's the book for me. The B I B L E that's the book for me.
the proper spirit and attitude of repentance. So let's look at verses 4, the whole of verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, there's something here that may cause some consternation in us when we read David's saying, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Because the reality of the matter is that David had not only sinned against God with this transgression, but just think of the people who were involved in this wickedness. David sinned against Bathsheba by enticing her into this adulterous relationship. And in so doing, David sinned against his own wives and against his own children, against his whole family. And not only did he sin against them and and against Bathsheba, but he obviously sinned against Uriah and his entire household. He sinned against Uriah's parents if they were still living or any of his siblings that may have still been around when they had to mourn the death of Uriah. But again, beyond that, David sinned against every one of his soldiers in his army because he's the commander-in-chief of the armies of Israel. And when the commander-in-chief, for his own private and personal vested interest, puts one of his soldiers at the front line in order to have him killed, he violates every soldier under his command. But even beyond that, David is not only the military commander of Israel, he's the king. And as the king, he is accountable before God to rule under what's called in the Old Testament the king's law. The king is supposed to manifest and exhibit the righteous reign of God. He is appointed as a deputy king under the reign of Yahweh, and his duty is to to act in such a way as a regent to say that the way I behave is the way God behaves. And so the people put their trust in their king, and the king now violates their personal trust. Remember, King David was not the chief leader of contemporary America. In our country today, we say it doesn't matter what the personal integrity or behavior of our president is. As long as he's a capable administrator, as long as the economy is going fine, he can behave in as sinful a manner as possible, and that's fine. We've seen that. But that wasn't the way it was in Israel. David's personal behavior, his immorality, reflected on the whole nation. And so from one perspective, it's simply not true that David's sin was only a violation of God because he violated all these other people. I remember once being involved in a counseling case in the church where a woman in the church became involved in an adulterous relationship with another person. And I remember as a result of that case, I had 16 people make counseling appointments with me. Her husband, the other guy's wife, the children, 
the in-laws, friends who felt so violated by this relationship that they had a crisis in their lives that required counseling. And people think that and they're engaged in this kind of relationship, it's, it's personal, it's private, it's not something that affects anybody except the immediate people engaged. That's not the case. But here's David eliminating all of these people that he's injured, and he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Now, this could be construed as a departure from authentic repentance, an attempt of the person to minimize their guilt in repentance, which is something that we frequently do. Even when we acknowledge our sin, we want to say, it's not a big deal. During the Watergate hearings, and right after Richard Nixon uh, resigned the presidency of the United States over the Watergate scandal, I was in Washington, D.C., and had the opportunity to have lunch in the Senate dining room with one of the senators uh, of the United States. And I remember as we were leaving the lunch and on an elevator, he looked at me and he said, you know, if President Nixon would have said to the people of America, violated your trust, I did not tell the, the truth. Please forgive me. He said, I think he would still be president today. But instead, he stood before the people and he said, I made a mistake, but I'm not a crook. That was simply not acceptable to the people of the United States at that period in American history. It would be now, obviously, but uh, now they wouldn't even admit to making a mistake. But there's a big difference between saying, I made a mistake and I sinned. See, when I sin, I want to call it a mistake. When you sin, I'm going to call it a sin. <laughs> but we tend to minimize the severity of our own guilt. And we could read this section of the psalm as that's what David is doing here. It's only against you. I only sinned against you, God. No. Remember, this psalm is not written simply by David in the flesh, but it is written under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. This is authentic repentance, not false repentance. So what is David saying? What David is understanding is even he clearly understood that sin involves violation of people on the horizontal level. But he understood the biblical principle that where there is no law, there can be no transgression. Because the very definition of sin is a transgression of the law of God. So that ultimately, sin is not sin unless it is against God, unless it transgresses his law. So in the ultimate sense, even if I injure you in an apparently insignificant way on that horizontal level, I am now offending God in the vertical plane of life. And David is saying, saying, God, I realize that in the final analysis where I have really offended is not just against Bathsheba, not just against Uriah, not just here in this human arena of, of human relationships, but where I have been most guilty is in sinning against you. And so when he says against thee and thee only, he's speaking hyperbolically. He's making that point that he recognizes 
that his wickedness and his guilt goes to the highest court, to the supreme tribunal of God, because in this broken human relationship, he's offended the holiness of God. And so that's where he, that's where he uh, places his emphasis in this act of repentance. Now, I said this segment is my favorite. It is in the second part of verse 4 that I find what I call the essence of true repentance. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, that's a little bit awkward in its expression here. And I've seen other translations render it in different ways, and they all seem to be awkward. This is the text that Paul cites in Romans when he talks about the merciful work of God in effecting our justification, where Paul is excited when he says that in the drama of the cross and in the drama of our redemption, God remains both just and the justifier. That in our redemption, in our salvation, God never, ever, ever, ever compromises his righteousness. You know, we say to ourselves, we should be uh, long-suffering and patient with other people's sins because we're sinners. And we are called to forgive others as we hope they will forgive us. And we understand that to err is human, to forgive divine and we often will say, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, that's an allusion, of course, to the story in John where the Pharisees catch this uh, woman in adultery and drag her before Jesus in public shame and try to trap Jesus into making a decision between Roman law and the Mosaic law and so on, and that's what Jesus tells them. Uh, he, he writes in the ground and says, let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all drop their stones and walk away. But we often overlook the point that there was one in that crowd who, under those terms, had the right to cast the stone. Because there was one in that crowd who was without sin. And it was Christ himself. And when the men all walked away, Jesus said to the woman, where are those who condemn thee? And she looks around and sees that they've all disappeared, and she says, no man, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But we need to remember that Jesus had every right to condemn that woman. She had violated the law of God. And he was without sin. And he chooses, instead of exercising justice against her, he grants her mercy. But when God does that, he doesn't negotiate his justice. What Paul tells us in Romans is the ground of our pardon rests in the work of Christ, where God requires two things from Jesus he requires on the first on the first hand on the first side that Jesus pay the penalty due our sins. On the cross we have the most vivid example of God's 
justice in all of history, where he really does unleash the fullness of his wrath against Christ once Christ has willingly taken upon himself by imputation our sin, punishes that sin. God doesn't just say, well, that's okay. You know, boys will be boys. We'll slide over. God will not ever compromise his righteousness. And at the same time, God requires from Christ in order to qualify for the cross in the first place that he be the lamb without blemish, that he live a life of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness before the Father without compromise. God doesn't bend the rules. God doesn't grade Jesus on a curve. He requires perfection so that his law and that his justice may be maintained. And so what you see in the drama of redemption is the most perfect expression of God's justice you will ever see. And at the same time, that is justice is fulfilled for us by someone else is the most vivid display of his mercy that we could ever have. So in the cross and in our justification, we see both justice and mercy being displayed. And when Paul reaches back to the Old Testament as he's explaining all of that in the book of of, uh, Romans, back to verse 4 of Psalm 51, and reminds the people that David says here that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. What's he really saying here? What he's saying is, God, I'm begging you for mercy. I'm appealing to your chesed, your loving kindness, your steadfast love, and the multitude of your tender mercies. I'm asking not for justice, but for grace. Because I know that if you were to apply to me the strict rules of your justice, I would perish. Here's where, in throwing himself upon the mercy of the court, in a very real sense, David shuts his mouth. Again, the basic metaphor that we find in the New Testament for the last judgment is that when God reads the indictment of people's sins to them, There's no hue and cry. There's no protest. No one stands at the judgment seat of God and cries, that's not fair. But every tongue is stopped. Every mouth is stopped. Every tongue is reduced to silence on the last day because the evidence that God amasses is so overwhelming that people see the absolute futility of trying to protest. And this is what David is saying here. If you want to send me to hell, I could have no complaint. That whatever you say here, you are perfectly just to say it. And I acknowledge, O God, that you have every right to do with me what is pleasing to you. That's the broken and contrite heart. That's what it means to be truly repentant. That what it, that's what it means to have a godly sorrow. 
that is authentic in repentance. When you acknowledge before God, not only that you're guilty, not only do you confess your transgression, not only do you plead for his mercy to be given to you and his pardon, but you acknowledge that he has every right to punish you absolutely by his justice. That you, he says, may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. I can't think of too many sins, if there are any, more egregious than to blaspheme God by accusing God of being unjust. That's why it frightens me when I'm engaged in conversations all the time with the people who are struggling with the biblical doctrine of election, where people's protest again and again against it is, that's not fair. Or if they would read Romans 9 and the apostle says there, is there unrighteousness in God? And what's his answer? By no means. God forbid. But it's when we think God owes us something that we protest against his mercy and his justice. David doesn't do that. David realizes that his only hope in life and death is the mercy and the grace of God. Then he goes on to say, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now here, David appeals to original sin. But again, he's not doing what I hear people do all the time. People say, what kind of a God is it who allows people to be born in a state of sin? They're born fallen and corrupt. They're sinners because they have a sin nature. They're doing what comes naturally because God has imputed to us the guilt of Adam. And I wasn't there in the garden, and I protested. How could God hold me responsible for sinning when I'm born with a sinful nature? Now, again, when David reminds God that he was born in sin, that he was conceived in sin in his mother's womb, He doesn't mean by that that it was a sin for his mother and father to have been engaged in sexual intercourse in order to procreate the earth, as some people think. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that when I was conceived, I was already fallen, that my sin nature was already there in the fertilized egg. Sin is not something that befell me when I was six years old or five months after I was born. I was conceived in that state, and when I was born, I was DOA. I was spiritually dead on arrival. I came into this world as a corrupt person. Now, he does not say, therefore, it's your fault that I have committed sin. He is not appealing to original sin here to minimize his guilt. But what he is doing is something extraordinary that to me, reveals the integrity of David's prayer and the authenticity of his repentance. He is confessing his guilt for the circumstances of his own conception. He is saying, God, it is perfectly just of you to have me conceived in sin and born in sin because I know I fell in Adam and the children of Adam 
can never pass the buck and say it's only because of Adam or because of God that I am a sinner. No, if Adam perfectly represented me in that probation in the Garden of Eden by God's appointment, then never were we more perfectly and righteously judged than when we were judged in Adam. And so I can't dodge this bullet by appealing to, well, I have a fallen nature, and it's not my fault I have a fallen nature. Because the mystery of original sin, as Paul develops it in Romans 5 in the New Testament, is that God holds us guilty and accountable for what our perfect representative did in our behalf in the garden. So see, what David is is doing here is he's confessing his accountability not only for the actual sin, but also for his original sin or his fallen condition out of which the actual sin emerged. And so he's saying to God, God, forgive me not only for my sins, but forgive me for being a sinner. Because we're not sinners because we sin. But rather we sin because we're sinners. And we need to confess our guilt not only for our actions, but for that sin nature that we all have out of which our sins flow. The fruit is corrupt because the tree is corrupt. And we need to repent not only for bearing corrupt fruit, but for, for being corrupt trees. Around Earth? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we can trust the Bible, starting with Genesis. I've often said that the Bible's not a science textbook, but when it does touch on science, it's always right. That's because God's word is true from the very first verse. Consider Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, which implies a round earth. It says God sits above the circle of the earth. And we now know that from space, the earth always appears as a circle, since it's round. This matches perfectly with the Bible. How could Isaiah have known that the earth appears as a circle from space? Well, he couldn't. But God knew because it's God who both formed the earth and inspired Isaiah's words. Yes, we can trust God's word in every area. Learn more about the Bible and why we can trust what it says when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. There's so much more to learn about the Bible at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, captured in the mind disaster, sending crimes in the dark. 
could turn this into Nick at night. He called the rabbi and gave the rock. Said he was a teacher from God. Jesus replied, made him stop. Regarding the kingdom of God, no one's going in. In fact, you can't even see it unless you're born again. That must have consumed and stressed his mind. Because he said, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? Naturalistically, the only way for him to hear it. Jesus said, you must be born of the water and the spirit. No other way to enter heaven. That sounds like a piece of Hanging on nothing? This is Ken Ham, CEO of the ministry that built a full-size ark south of Cincinnati. Many ancient peoples believed that earth must sit on something. Some thought it was the backs of elephants, others said it was pillars, and still others said earth rests on fish or a great bull. But what does the Bible say? Well, in the book of Job, we read that God hangs the earth on nothing. This verse is written in a poetic way, but it suggests that Earth floats in space, which of course it does. Pictures of the Earth taken from space show it floating in space. It literally hangs upon nothing, just as the Bible suggests. This reminds us that the Bible isn't a human book. It was written by God. Science confirms the Bible from the very first verse. Discover more fascinating information about science and the Bible when you visit our website, AnswersRadio.com. Peace, 
son, no need to run from the truth. We need to come to understand Ephesians 1. We see that love the Father predestined. We seem to have a problem with the doctrine of election. We keep stressing and leave guessing, leading to depression because it's God's love we question. We'll sit back and take a deep breath and exhale. Let's exhale. The word of God is refreshing. Let's be real with it. The Bible obviously talks about predestination, so we got to deal with it. I'll be your fake attorney by your grace and mercy and present my case. So let's take a journey for the sake of learning. First turn to Romans 8, 28 through 30. Zoom it in on verse 29. Read the first line. Those who we foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Exhibit number one. People try to use an argument lacking common sense concerning us with knowledge of God, thinking the logic fits. Through the saying, he looked out into the future ages with illumination, seeking all that which he salvation. And those men were chosen by God because they chose him. But that's not what the passage is spoken. It says, so before knew, he predestined. If he foreknew everybody, is everyone predestined? Is everyone his object of affection? If so, what's the point of the doctrine of election? It's spiritual, but let me make it plain. So you see the miracle and praise his name instead of taking his grace in vain. It isn't complicated. We all evaded the God that made us and traded in his truth for a lie. Worshiping what God created more than God, who was glorified, corroborated our death. Our lives are an abomination. But if the Father's aim is to bestow mercy, then it's not to say that he was obligated, but that God is gracious. It's God's enemies. We deserve to be crushed. We're dirty enough to be eternally cursed and turned into dust. And if he did it, he would be perfectly just to murder me. But he decided to show mercy to us. I didn't choose God. God chose me, gave me a new heart. And it wasn't because I was holy. But if I chose the OD, then God owes me. The only reason I first walked through them church doors in Psalm 65, verse 4. Why do I know God? Matthew 11, 27 says it best in those that have been predestined. Keep pressing. It's a deep message. I only see blessing in election. I'm going to see the blessing. No, it's not even a question. Oh, God in his perfection wrote the doctrine of election. Yeah, God in his perfection wrote the doctrine of election. Because he's sovereign, there's no question. And they got some people stressing. But no option but election can account for our protection. Godly direction or perfected bodily resurrection. Yo, don't let the thinking of modern men fool ya. God does what he wants. That's what it means to be sovereign ruler. It's deep and not complicated. With complete confidence, I'll say that keep it. It's how God has always operated. He's the greatest fan. His amazing plan made his hand save the man Abraham from a pagan land. Who can argue with the people that God chooses? Israel and not Egypt. Peter and not Judas. Humanly speaking, it should have been Saul and not David. The inheritance should have been Esau and not Jacob. The truth is speak rightly so you can see rightly. A Jews might be God who chooses is the least likely. Still, some contested as a phony doctrine. But if we're really dead in sin, predestination is the only option. With reservations and human side. This hesitation is because it's devastating to human pride. This truth is the sober kind that you're prone to find in passages like Romans 9 is so divine, it'll blow your mind. We are the clay and we've been formed by the potter. None can come to the sun unless they're drawn by the father. But God draws everybody. That's what some cats say. It can't be that way because all who are drawn are raised on the last day because of original sin and all of our despicable deadness within election must be unconditional then. Some people say that we were drowning in the ocean, barely floating, until God threw us the rope then. Our free will helps us as we grow. Our faith is the hand that grabs the rope and God put us back in the boat. No, without apology, I deny that analogy. Reality, we were dead at the bottom of the sea. I was a swollen corpse with hope no more till Jehovah the Lord throws from the shore to the ocean floor. Yeah, I was a corpse and I smelt like I keep it simple, 
listen, throughout the Bible, there's major examples of this. Take it to passages like the praising of Lazarus rather than debating the master's gifts. We should be happily praising his magnanimous saving of savages. It's time we see God's sovereignty and his primacy, his holy dynasty, running things by divine decree. Why does he do summon our others to see Jesus? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Is it really an expanding universe? This is Ken Ham, publisher of the award-winning magazine for families called Answers. In the book of Isaiah, we read that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain. This suggests the universe has expanded since creation. Now this verse must have seemed strange when it was first written. The universe certainly doesn't look like it's expanding. And in fact, many scientists used to believe the universe doesn't change. Now, when scientists teach one thing and the Bible another, many Christians are tempted to think maybe God got the details wrong. But he's never wrong. Today, the evidence strongly suggests the universe is indeed expanding. The Bible was right. Thousands of years before, scientists finally caught up with it. There's so much more to learn about how science confirms the Bible when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Get more faith-building information at AnswersRadio.com. Take up and be and be the people of the world, of the world, gotta, gotta. 
get better with time. Put a mason back in the crate with the letters of John Newton. Whoa. Now, I ain't trying to be all high for Newton, but you'll find prudence. Reading lectures to my students. Ephesians 4.11, gifts from my Lord and Master. Preaching and preachers will help perform pastors. Baxter, Richard, I demand scripture. Cast me like what, son? Got me man's picture. Promise now to think about the topics that are future. The mystery of providence, the Bible in the future. I'm chosen by God just to put a little scroll in this. And J.C. got me roused up about holiness. The cross of Christ paid the price. This top was owing in the glory of Christ. is why I'm flowing. Read. Foundations of the Christian faith by James Ford. Instruments in the Redeemer team by Paul Trey. How should we then live by Francis Schaefer? The existence and attributes of God by Stephen Charlotte. The law and the gospel by Ernest Rice. Redemption accomplished and applied by John Murray. All to the ministry by Ed Clowney. More than Conquerors by William Hendrickson. The Cross and Christian Ministry by D.A. Carson. Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. Lies Women Believe by Nancy Lee Lamar. The Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson. Reading with the Lord by Nathan Peterman. The Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges. The People of Being and God is of the seas. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truths of God's Word. I wish there were more scientists like Matthew Maori. This man is remembered as the pathfinder of the seas because he discovered and mapped the ocean currents. But here's why I wish more scientists were like him. He read his Bible and he believed it. In Psalm 8, Maori read of the paths of the seas. Since he believed the Bible, he knew that if the Bible said there were paths in the seas, then there really were paths in the seas. So he set out to find them and made a discovery that revolutionized the study of the oceans. Imagine how much more we'd know about the world if more scientists started with God's Word. Yes, we can trust the Bible from the very first verse. Discover more about starting with God's Word and learn about our popular life-size Noah's Ark at AnswersRadio.com. Cause Adam represents 
Canada says a federal head. A federal head? It means we're born sinners as well, and apart from God's grace, we're all headed for hell. What's the good news? The good news is seen in God's plan to elect the people to be redeemed by the Lamb. Speak God in the truth today. science textbook? This is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's Word. This week we've seen that whenever the Bible touches on science, it gets it right. But I've had Christians tell me, the Bible's not a science textbook. And I agree, and I'm glad. You see, textbooks are constantly being updated as we learn new things and correct false ideas from the past. No, the Bible's not like that at all. It's unchanging and eternal. But yes, the Bible is primarily concerned with God's plan of redemption, showing us our sin nature and pointing to the Savior. But it's filled with history, the truth about our origins, and yes, some science. Since the Bible is God's word, no matter what it speaks on, we know it's the truth. 
Find out more about the true history of the world from God's Word at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again. Plus, read Ken's articles at AnswersRadio.com. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as truth, the letter B, then told radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B. T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is truth, the letter B only, not B-E, told radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M smilesandstuff.com So stay social with us and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Are you a good person? Sure, you might say. I try to do what's right. I think I'm generally nice to other people. By what standard do you think you're a good person? You might say, well, there are others who are way worse than me. I mean, I'm not Hitler. Okay, glad to hear you're not guilty of genocide. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? It's a good short list of basic moral instructions. Would you agree? So let me ask you this. Have you ever told a lie before? Yeah, who hasn't? What do you call a person who tells lies? You call that person a liar. Have you ever stolen anything before? No. Are you sure? Because you just told me you're a liar. Have you written down hours that you didn't really work, not returned something you borrowed, downloaded pirated music, movies, or software? Ah, now what do you call a person who steals? We call them a thief. Have you ever looked at someone with lust? Of course, both men and women do this. Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Have you ever hated someone or called them names? Yeah, I'm sure you have. Jesus said, whoever has done this shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Have you ever used God's name to curse? That's called blasphemy. It is a serious sin, and God will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Right here, we've just gone through five of the Ten Commandments, and by your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterous, murderous, blasphemer at heart. If you did only these five sins every day, that's 1,825 sins a year. If you lived another 50 years, that's 91,250 more sins on top of what you've already done. The Bible says each of us will give an account of himself to God. Jesus said, I am he who searches minds and hearts, 
and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. If God were to judge you just by half of the Ten Commandments, do you think he would let you into heaven, or would he send you to hell? But isn't God loving, you say? Won't he just forgive me? If a judge in any of today's courts had a reputation for letting people get away with breaking the law, would you call that loving? Certainly not to the people whom those lawbreakers hurt, right? Say a wealthy, influential man was guilty of murder, but he told the judge, so I killed someone, but I've done way more good than bad. And he laid out an impressive resume of all the millions of dollars he's contributed to good causes to help improve people's lives. If the judge were to say, well, you make a good case, and pardoned him, what would you say about that? How would that be reported in the news? You and most everyone else are going to say that judge is corrupt and unjust for letting a man get away with murder. God's standard is much higher than any earthly court. He is holy, totally perfect and without error. His law is just and unchanging, whereas man's laws can be unjust, and we change the rules and the definitions of right and wrong all the time. Sin is breaking God's law. As 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is lawlessness. The Bible calls sin a crime against God, enmity with God, and a debt so great that we cannot repay it. The Bible says all of us have sinned. The wages of sin is death, and what we deserve is judgment, eternal separation from God in hell. Then what hope do we have against a standard like that? I'm glad you asked. If a sinless person offered to stand in your place and take your punishment for you, then justice would be served, and you would be set free. God, being merciful, has made just such a sacrifice. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him will not perish under the just and righteous judgment of God, but have eternal life. God's son is Jesus Christ, the only good person who ever lived. Jesus came down from heaven and was born as a baby. He grew up and became a man, keeping God's law perfectly, living a sinless life which we could not live. He willingly gave his life, dying on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for sins, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve. Through his death, the wrath of God is satisfied. Then Jesus rose from the dead, according to the scriptures, conquering death itself before ascending back to his Father in heaven. He reigns over all of creation, and he will return again to judge the living and the dead. Whoever has faith in him, puts their trust in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins, they will be saved. No longer an enemy of God under his wrath, you will be made a friend of God and the object of his affection. No longer in rebellion against God, you will be made to desire God and to serve him. No longer a child of darkness, you will be made into a son or a daughter of God, adopted into his family. More than this, the Bible says, he will give you an inheritance in his eternal kingdom, and you will live forever with God. In that place, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. What you have just heard is called the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, how will you respond? Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel, meaning that you must turn from your own way and believe in Jesus. 
If you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Believe in Jesus Christ. He alone is worthy of our love, our worship, and our obedience. You learn how to do that by reading his word, the Bible. If you believe, go to a good church that teaches the Bible and grow with other Christians. Understand what it means to be baptized, showing that the old you is gone and you've been raised with Christ to walk in new life. The Christian life is not about what we can do. It's about what Christ has done for us. Share the good news of the gospel with others, for you know many people, friends and family, who are going to hell. The only way they can be saved is the way you are saved, by the grace of God through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we understand the text.
wave on my behalf to face the crisis like my past. Make believe the part of the fam. How does the holy guy part of the man? So happy my heart to understand. From the beginning was part of the plan. Imagine it. I can't explain the half of it. Our brains can't even fathom it. And language is inadequate. To characterize the Lord on the throne with spiritual eyes and story is known. From a myth to a myth to a myth, everything's truly the God we deserve. Glory to doesn't feel like it's respectful. I, 
if God does love everyone, why doesn't he love that type of community? That's a good question. Is your mother a Christian? Yes. And you're not a Christian, and you have some problems with what Christianity says about homosexuality. Is that right? Okay, I've got a question for you. Does God love adulterers? No, I, I doubt he'll accept that, because that is, un, like, disrespectful. It's wrong, isn't it? Yes. You know, God loves homosexuals. He doesn't want homosexuals or adulterers or fornicators or liars or thieves to end up in hell, but they will if they continue to do things that are morally offensive to them. And homosexuality in the Bible is a sin in God's eyes. So God loves homosexuals. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says, and he's made provision for a homosexual to be made right with him. So let's get back to you and your standing before God. Do you think you're a good person? We're all not good persons. We've done things bad. So you're looking at pornography? No. When did you last look at pornography? I never even heard of that. How do you know you don't look at it if you've never heard of it? No, because I'm not interested in that. So when did you last look at pornography? Was it recently? Back as a young kid. So you started young. Well, that's morally offensive to God. Jesus said whoever looks at a woman and lusts for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. How many lies have you told in your life? Oh, man. A lot of lies. Have you ever stolen something? No. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Well, sometimes I say, like, that's blasphemy. Use the name of Jesus Christ. It's using his name as a cuss word. Yeah, but sometimes it happens out of nowhere. Yeah, it comes out of your mouth, out of your heart, and it's wrong. It's using the Savior's name as a cuss word. Yeah. Instead of using a filth word that we use to describe human excrement, begins with S. You've substituted the name of Jesus Christ in its place. And the Bible says there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the highest name ever. So that's called blasphemy. It's very serious in his eyes. So here's a little summation to show you your standing before God. If God judges you on judgment day by that standard as a liar, and I can't trust you when you say you've never stolen anything because you told me you lie all the time, you've blasphemed, you've looked at women with lust and committed adultery in your heart. If God judges you by those commandments, the Ten Commandments, you're going to be innocent or guilty. Maybe innocent, but maybe guilty. I'm in between, though. You can't be. If you stand in court and you've committed a serious crime, you can't say, Judge, I'm innocent and guilty. I'm in between. You've got to, you've got to jail. So, man, you need, you need to repent put your faith in Jesus. I'll tell you why. This is what the Bible said. And remember what we start. Oh, you've got a call to take? Is it important? I'm heading there soon. I'm, I'm doing an interview. Is it the guy with the dog? Yes. Okay, okay. So just head on over whenever you're done. Okay. All right, bye-bye. So let's get back to it. If you stand before God and he judges you by those commandments, you're going to be guilty, and I don't want you to go to hell. Sure. I just met you. That horrifies me. The thought. And neither does your mom want you to go to hell. What you need is righteousness. You need to be made right with God. Let me share a Bible verse. It says, Riches profit not on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Now, do you know how God can make you righteous, how he can cleanse you of sin? I heard my mom always says God gives people second chances. So probably I could get a second chance. Well, this is the second chance. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for the sin of the world. There's still sin in this world. People still murder. People still do bad things. People still make, like, movies that aren't supposed to be made, like horror films or, like, bad films. Yeah, well, they'll answer to God. And so will you, and that's why you need to be made righteous. So let's look at you for a moment and not them. Jesus suffered and died on the cross, took the punishment for the sin of the world. Now you know that, but you may not know this. 
The Ten Commandments are called the moral law. You and I broke the law. Jesus came and paid the fine. That's what happened on the cross. If you're in court and you've got speeding fines, the judge will let you go if someone pays your fine. Do you understand that? He'll say, you're out of here. You can go because someone paid your fine. Well, God can forgive you. He can let you go. He can take the death sentence off you because Jesus paid the fine and his life's blood rose from the dead and defeated death. And if you'll simply repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, that is, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, God promises, and he cannot lie, he'll forgive every sin you've ever committed, and he'll make you righteous in his sight, wash away your sins, he'll clothe you in righteousness, so when you stand before him on judgment day, you're clean, and he can grant you everlasting life as a free gift. Does that make sense? Yes. So if you were to die today, you'd end up in hell. I don't want that to happen. God doesn't want that to happen. Your mum doesn't want that to happen. So when are you going to repent and put your faith in Jesus? Perhaps I'll try this year. What about today? It's never going to come if you put it in the future. Get right with God today. Think about it, because you could die today. You don't know. You could die in your sleep tonight. I think I'm trying to scare you You're right, yeah, because yeah. this is really scary. You should listen to your fears. You put on a parachute because you're scared of jumping. You put on a safety belt because you're scared of head-on collision, and you put on the Savior because you're scared of hell. That's legitimate self-preservation so please think about what we talked about will you do that yes can i give you a book that i've written sure do you have a bible at home i have like, multiple bibles yeah well your mom's praying for you that you come to a place of genuine saving faith and be born again with a new heart new desires let me get that book for you i'm going to give you something else okay this is called scientific facts in the bible you'll enjoy it Another little book called Save Yourself from Pain, which is Principles of Christian Growth for you. Robin, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening today, okay? Have a great day. Thank you. People often say, I'd love you to talk to my unbelieving friend or family member. But why not send them this video? Just click on the share button and say, I'd love to know what you think of this. There's nothing offensive about that. Send it and then pray. Do it today. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, the Evidence Study Bible, 200 Most Commonly Asked Questions of the Christian Faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com.
did Jesus do after he rose from the grave? He ascended into heaven. Where is Jesus now? He is seated at his Father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Oh, 
That's how I got for Trippy Toll Radio to go out with Yancy and friends and the Via Billy. Thanks for listening and bye for now. <laughs>